0: This week's episode is brought to you by Screencastify. Millions of people use Screencastify to record, edit, and share videos. Visit Screencastify.com to see what all the hype is about and start your free account today. That's Screencastify.com. Welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where every week we explore the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm the managing editor at EdSurge.com. We are an award winning nonprofit newsroom. Online high schools were a growing trend even before the COVID 19 pandemic struck. And some online schools were beginning to have a global reach. Now that the whole world has been forced to experiment with online delivery, where does that leave the international demand for online education, especially at the K 12 level? And what's it done for the global market for online undergrad education as well? Those were the key questions at a panel discussion that I got to moderate this month at the ASU-GSV Summit in San Diego. For this week's Ed Surge podcast, we're going to bring you highlights of that discussion, which was held in person in front of an audience of, of folks wearing masks, and it was also streamed online to those who couldn't be there in person. We were joined by three guests who have been leading online schools during this time. One was David Freed the Chief Operating Officer of Crimson Education. That's an online teaching and tutoring company that runs an online high school. The second guest was Jade Roth, who is CEO of Avenue Learning. That company helps support online students, and it was created as a joint venture between Southern New Hampshire University and the SEEK group to support global learners who were looking for certificate, undergrad, or graduate degrees. And the third guest was Tomohiro Hoshi, He's head of school at Stanford Online High School. That's an online school affiliated with Stanford University. So this was the first in-person conference that I've gone to anyway since the pandemic hit. And it was a strange feeling to be back in a hotel ballroom, in person, doing a panel discussion. But I think everyone there was really eager to share what they've been seeing during this unprecedented time. And it turns out the answers to some of the questions we were looking into, they're complicated and really nuanced. It turns out different parts of the world are more or less open to online education than others. And as you'll hear, our panelists had some theories about why that's so. I started by asking everyone on the panel, how are things different now compared to before the pandemic? And what has the pandemic taught us about online education? I started with David Freed.
1: The obvious difference is that everyone's gone online. So here at Crimson, we uh, started dreaming about an online high school uh, a decent amount of time ago in 2018, we started to file licenses to get ready. We were always looking at April 2020 as being our uh, big date uh, to uh, you know, really open the doors. And of course, that turned out to be a pretty fortunate time to open an online high school. So we've been kind of a passenger in this whole movement towards being online. And what I think we've seen is that the benefits of online learning are immense um, and that they really apply transnationally. So this is the idea of flexibility, the things you can do online that you can't do in person. Uh, We talk a lot at Crimson about this idea of geographic equity, Um, the idea that previously you're limited in the quality of the education that you receive by the best teacher within, I don't know, 15 to 20 walking miles of your house. What's the best school you can attend? Where do the teachers live? And what we can do online is we can extend that high-quality teachers that live in dense urban areas around the globe. Um, that live in select countries, and part of our mission with the Global Academy, our high school, is to further this idea, to have students from around the globe able to really realize that a lot of our first adopters have been students from rural backgrounds or countries that uh, don't normally have access to this high quality of education. We started in New Zealand, but we've seen uptick from places like Costa Rica, South Africa, Um, and so I think that's definitely been one of the lessons. On the other hand, we've obviously all seen the difficulties that some of this can have um, covid and learning online has compounded feelings of isolation for a lot of students there's probably a mental health crisis in this country especially among teenagers and young adults that we're not talking enough about um, i don't think online learning is at fault for that i think it actually can solve some of those which i'm sure we'll talk about more but um, i think that's something that we definitely need to reckon with as we move more and more to having hybrid modes of learning
0: Thanks. Jade, um, so yeah, like what's different and what has the pandemic taught us?
2: Um, Well, I think the pandemic has been both an accelerant and a barrier um, to online education specific. In many ways, it's accelerated the uh, the embrace of online education as a valid and credible model, particularly outside of the U.S., where it has been less uh, seen that way. Um, But I think it's also been a barrier for many students who have had their economic lives up uh, just in upheaval, uh, and things like continuing their studies, persistence, how to be successful have really uh, been stressed. And if you look at the world landscape, you see regions and countries that have had particular challenges with the pandemic um, that have also accelerate some of the challenges that students have. So the recent unrest um, in Colombia is a prime example. There are examples all over the world. So, uh, you know, you could say from an online learning perspective, there have been positives, if there are any positives out of all of this, positives and negatives that have come from the pandemic. I think what really happens next is um, how... We recognize those things. We'll continue to be here for quite some time because this is clearly not over yet in any way. Uh, and how do we then try to solve those problems that existed before but are exacerbated by current conditions? And I think that's
0: the next big challenge. Thanks. And Tomohiro, um, any, any starters for us here? Sure, yeah,
3: yeah, I definitely agree uh, the dif- uh, difference that the pandemic made was th- uh, the size of the participants in this uh, market differently, you know, still more students and more teachers and more schools and programs and so forth uh, there's no denial of that, and uh, I think the uh, correspondingly uh, the uh, market is being also kind of the, co- the nature of the competition has been also uh, changed a little bit. So, uh, we, you know, I, I'm from Stanford Online High School, which has been uh, there for uh, about 16 years. But uh, um, the competitions that I see more about this point is the competition differently between o- different online programs, obviously. So, m- there are more online high schools and online schools, etc. So, even though there are more students there, uh, I think the difference in terms of the quality of these programs and such uh, has been uh, more uh, in evaluation. And also, I think the competition between uh, traditional schools and also online schools uh, might be more evident in the past. Also, you know, as I've, been, I've done this uh, for a long time, right? Uh, traditional you know, schools might not have seen us as uh, you know, serious competitors in the past. But at this point, uh, are more, more and more students from traditional schools might be interested in this kind of online uh, options. So uh, there's that sort of competition there as well.
0: Now, one thing that... Um one thing I think has become clear, and some you know already Jade mentioned this is it's highlighted existing challenges that were there already with the education system in various ways, and I guess I wanted to push on that a little bit and say to if each of you could talk about what is maybe and we can start with you jade, of what is an example of something that the pandemic showed was kind of broken or dysfunctional or whatever you, you know word you might want to use um that is almost like a opportunity for change or certainly a something that we realize may still need addressing even you know as we come out of the pandemic you know hopefully sooner or later it's unclear whether when we'll be really out of it but you know as we shift back to something closer to normalcy is there a, a, a problem you could that you see as as one of those
2: uh, well, I think there are there are a bunch, but just to focus on one, if you think from a macro perspective, uh, it really exposed challenges in infrastructure, so bandwidth or electricity, even basic infrastructure needs that are required for online learning, access to technology, things like that. Um, and as the economic um, as the economic hit came, some of those things really started to fall apart, whether they're in growth countries or growth markets or more mature markets. And so I think that's one of the first things that it exposed. Um, Aside from that, then you have all the macroeconomic trends of people being um, unable to attend school. But I thought one of your comments was really interesting, because we actually saw that, too. So, um, you know, for Avenue Learning, we play at the affordability scale, so... um, we're bringing degrees from from Western countries into growth markets at in-market pricing and in-market language and culture. And what we actually found was that they were considerably lower priced than some of the existing higher education opportunities in the countries where we're delivering education on behalf of our partners. And um, we saw a huge uptick in what I would call the traditional student migrating into this um, more international education, affordable online model than we ever expected.
0: So in other words, can you give an example, like what country, where did that happen?
2: If we look at um, Mexico, we had a large influx of um, young students, so undergraduate, first time going to college, who were opting into these programs instead of going to the college that they would have traditionally had attended because all of a sudden it was more expensive. Their parents couldn't afford it. They saw, a, a, in this case, a U.S. degree as being um, having uh, the same type of credibility as the education that they would have gotten from a very great school in Mexico, um, but just the cost differential was uh, too much for them to pass up. So.
0: Hmm here. do you want to jump in with something that this exposes that might be something that can be addressed now, uh, you know?
3: Sure, yeah, just to follow up on this point, yeah, I mean, Great. the U.S. could be a- another example too, right? Everybody has seen this uh, report on the number of uh, even public schools, which is going to continue their online, pro- uh, you know, programs for the upcoming fall and so forth. So uh, definitely, and uh, just to come back to the core point of the question, I think uh the issue that the pandemic really showed uh was broken was indeed the polarization, like as uh, jade mentioned uh of education and of, of many things right and uh the online education came with such a promise uh, for a wider access and so forth, online on education, in you know, a more, you know, wider uh, distribution of education and so forth. But even prior to the pandemic, I think there has been lots of reports uh, that have shown and uh, claimed that the uh, actually the polarization was worse. And uh, you know, looking at the reports coming out during the pandemic time, I think the polarization was indeed even worse in, in various ways. But you know, I think people are, have been working to, I mean, realize that. Uh, you know, as a result of the pandemic and uh, trying to focus to uh, indeed work on that.
0: And by, could you say a little bit more about the polarization and how that plays out? What do you mean by that?
3: Right, right. So as Jade said, indeed, right, like, you know, for, for online uh, education, you've got to have a device in the first place and why the wide internet, not only that. Uh, you know, so, some uh, online pedagogy might require a higher level of disciplines and independence of students, so st- students might need to be trained already for that. And what kind of students might, might have been trained for that? Maybe the students with, some, you know, a uh, uh, great amount of resources already. So I think uh, students who are ready for online education could take advantage of that during the pandemic, but the students who couldn't, uh, you know, who weren't ready for it couldn't.
0: Yeah, so and, and really these divides, it's not just about whether you have a device, um, but, but really the, you know, kind of the fluencies and, and preparedness. Yeah, that's really interesting. And David, you mentioned um, the online, the mental health crisis, but maybe there's other, that or other ones that you see as, as something being highlighted.
1: I think, um, you know, to build off kind of what Tom Hero was talking about and, and what you just mentioned, it's not really just device, but you see massive differences from children from two-parent households, children whose parents are able to stay at home and work with them. Um, I think a lot of what's maybe understated about online learning is the technological difficulty. It's not seamless, even if you have a good Wi-Fi connection, to find where everything is. You... Uh, we see this as we're building our online high school. There are not a lot of great solutions out there where you can go to one place for everything. You have a lot of, you know, when we're mystery shopping competitors and you're going in and you're looking at these online high schools, those students are going to nine different websites to find what they need in a classroom. Um, and so if you are not, you know, technologically fluent, if this is new to you, especially if you're a younger learner, I think that's another thing we've seen is that online learning is v- much better the older you are, uh... Even before the pandemic, I think one of six college learners in the U.S. was online, at least in part, showing that there was actually significant adoption of this before COVID came along, but uh, with older people, with more mature people, people more on top of it. And so I think we've seen that that has been a struggle for a lot of people is the technological aspect and just the kind of level of responsibility you need online where there's not someone looking over your shoulder.
0: Yeah, and I think this has been something that people that have been doing online education have known for a while. But as all these new, new, suddenly new, you know, newly teaching online, I'm sure that was something that was a wake up call um, for people. After the break, not everyone had a great experience learning online during the emergency of this pandemic. Are these education leaders worried about a backlash against the online format? Stay with us. This week's episode is brought to you by Screencastify. Screencastify is easy to use for teachers at any skill level and students at any age. It was developed by a team of former teachers and administrators, so they know how to deliver the best tools and support for educators at every level. Visit Screencastify.com to see why Screencastify is the go-to video solution in more than 70% of U.S. school districts. That's Screencastify.com. Now, back to the episode. I want to jump into the next question because I think it's something that um, a lot of people are probably curious about, too, and maybe isn't getting talked about as much, which is, are you worried about a backlash against online learning? I know there's been a lot of talk about the opportunities and how there's all this usage of online tools and online learning during this pandemic, but... Some people had a great experience, probably through your programs, and other people may not have had, maybe had a lousy experience, or maybe they had a little bit of of good and bad, and maybe just so done with it. And I I don't, you know, at at, at a place like this, I haven't heard that talked about as much. Um, And I guess maybe Tomohiro, if you could start and, and just to hear your thoughts on whether there's a concern about any backlash maybe against online learning that could be counterproductive, even for programs that have been doing it a while and know what they're doing and are you know, just getting better.
3: Yeah, definitely, yeah. This has been a, a big topic in our school board discussion, particularly like up to probably like several months ago uh, because as we saw uh, various news and reports, uh, again, like as you said, there are students who are enjoying their online education but there are students who aren't. So. Uh, for students who haven't been uh, enjoying the online education, they might think that uh, it, this is it. Uh, so, uh, you know, how is it going to impact on the number of applications to our school, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But fortunately, you know, in the case of our school, the application number has been increasing. And I think it's due to the kind of pretty specific mission of the school and also the target of our student body. So uh, prior to the pandemic, we've been having enough of applications and we keep the uh, focus and the target uh, of our education. So in, our, in the case of our school, I, I'm not concerned at this moment yet. Uh, however, definitely, uh, when we look at the uh, online education market uh, uh, as a whole, uh, there may, may, may be some programs which might uh, have grown so much, uh, you know, which might have relied on some, uh, you know, uh, increase, like a radical increase of interest due to the pandemic. So I think there might be some backlash uh, and, uh, you know, I think some organization might need to be prepared for it.
0: Yeah. Jade, do you want to add anything to this? Um.
2: I think of online as a modality uh, and education as engagement. So I think that, um, you know, it's really what you make of it, and I think that that's got to be the focus, is not whether the modality is right or wrong, but whether the education itself is engaging. Um, You know, one of the things that we're fortunate about is we have worked with university partners who have been in online for decades and so they have really focused on that engagement piece. They weren't just thrown into online because of COVID, uh, and I think that's really helped people to stay engaged. But I do think modality is not really the question. It's what do you make of the education, regardless of the modality.
0: Yeah, and I guess uh, I guess that that is the maybe the pitch. But I guess there's that always you know the the concern of whether you know, people might, despite you're saying that, see, see like, well, I had a bad experience. Um, so I guess, David, do you have anything to add to, you know, whether that backlash could could affect enrollments?
1: Yeah, I'd probably make two points on this. The first is that I think as it relates to online education, there's this myth out there that no one was doing it before COVID. And I think as it relates to a backlash or people thinking about it, there were five states prior to COVID that mandated that you take an online course to graduate high school. There are states off in the middle of the country like Michigan, Virginia, Alabama, Florida, but it was already a requirement with places like Georgia, West Virginia, considering it too. So it was nearly a fifth of states in the U.S. that either had this on the books or were going to make it a requirement for graduation for high school students. 91% of kids in Michigan were doing it, um, I think, in 2019. And Uh, we had about 500,000 kids in the U.S. that learned exclusively online. So I think the baseline was already much more pro-online than it was. I think, to your point, there probably will be a backlash. I don't think that's going to stop the surge. I think online education is, frankly, probably a pretty easy punching bag. There are kids, as we've talked about, that it's not going to work for. If you're out there trying to paint that narrative, if you're out there trying to find kids, it's not going to be hard to do that. To find kids where it didn't work for them, it's Um, going to be easy to write those stories to kind of chip away at it because I think a lot of people have this kind of romanticized view of what education has been for kids across the country right now. Um, But online education, as I was talking about before, is going to offer those kids better teachers and offer them more flexibility. This idea that you can't take AP classes, you can't take classes in computer science because your your school just doesn't offer them or the teacher doesn't live in that area. Those are ideas that hopefully are going to go out the window, and hopefully those things will, over time, continue to attract people to what I think people were buying into before COVID. But I wouldn't be surprised to see that there will be a campaign against it, because the success rates won't be 100%, which is fine. They're not 100% the way we do it. But I think Jade made a good point about modality. It's just a different option, and it's a different medium for people to experience it. Um, so as long as we accept that it's not the only medium, that the optimal might be a mix of those, um, I think it should continue to go up, but I'm sure there will be headwinds in the media and our stuff like that. Um,
0: so I will opening this up for questions, uh, after, uh, from the audience after this. Um, so be thinking of those if, if, if folks have things that have bubbled up, um, in their minds as they they're as they've known, but I, I, I want to segue to s- to the the international component here. And actually, David, maybe we'll start with you. Um, Of what, um, you know, how is it different in different parts of the world? What are some things you're seeing? Because obviously, just like there's not a uniform answer to any of these questions, of course, but I'm interested in some specifics that have been gleaned as, as y'all have done your work in like what areas of the, of the world have had, you know, kind of interesting, you know, differences in the adoption of online um, school or, or tech enabled school um, versus others.
1: Yeah. I think that's an interesting question to my, to the point I was just going on. I think the biggest pushback to online learning kind of paradoxically is the places that are right now the best off. So the places that have the best in-person options don't want to live with the inconveniences of being online. So, so they're the most resistant. They're the most resistant. So I think you see places like even New York City or places like San Francisco that you know haven't really made that full switch to online or haven't embraced it necessarily as quickly. But places that we see, like I'll take a couple: South Africa, Costa Rica, Dubai. Those are all places that found us when we launched our online high school. We They came
0: knocking. They
1: came knocking. We uh, found lots of students from them. South Africa is actually a good example of a country that 10 years ago the government was starting sort of this set of online resources for schools to access and for students to access. They've actually been ahead of the curve a bit, as has places like Australia. But a lot of these places are not given the same high quality of international teachers you find in a London and a New York and a Paris. Um, So they're more and more open to what these kind of online curricula provide. Um, and I think you also have another interesting segment of this I'm curious Tom here what you see is that we see a lot of students in East Asia who are very open to this because the culture over there is in general a little more online than in the United States it's a little more common to be doing you know all your transactions through your phone to be um, ed tech is already so big there India is another big one where again this question of access looms much larger than the question of you know what's kind of the ideal way to learn
0: Sure, more than uh, perception, it's it's the tech, and yeah.
1: especially you know they have infrastructure problems, but like they're very open to this because this is the way for them to get access and to reach things that they would have had trouble reaching otherwise. So I think we've seen a lot of openness and a lot of willingness to experiment in those places too. Um, I think that there's a an understanding that we're going to try lots of different things. I might get educated lots of different ways. Those are A lot of parts of the world where you have huge markets for adult learning, I think China and India especially are very big for that. Japan has been doing the online high school thing for a long time. So I think a lot of the rest of the world, I wouldn't say is ahead of the US, certainly the US has, I think the highest proportion of children who learn online even before the pandemic, but they're catching up and they're definitely interested in pursuing it too.
0: Yeah, hero oh, let's go to you
3: next on this one. Sure, sure, yeah. So in my view, right, as you pointed out, there is this phenomenon that maybe like some East Asian countries are so open to, right, this kind of mode of uh, education. I, I think there is a little bit of a difference in terms of the um, like how they see what education should be like. And I think this is to your point, uh, perhaps, because in this country, I feel like, as you said, like, oh, you know, education is about engagement and... Uh, a uh, good classroom should come with great engagement and you know great interactions between students and teachers engaging students you know uh, effectively etc But that's not necessarily the kind of the best education maybe that, you know, people in some of these countries might see. Like, so I grew up in Japan, as you introduced me, Jeff, and uh, I think there it's like in my view, maybe there might have been more of a curriculum-based kind of view on education. Here is the curriculum, and this is the kind of, you know, supposed effect of the curriculum and uh we go for it right like i, I would like to send student my my students to, you know for that curriculum whatever you know however it's taught in in some ways right so i think uh when somebody has that sort of view uh, you know uh, on online education you know, there are some effective way of delivering a product for that, right? Like a good curriculum and good uh, lecture-based uh, kind of right? uh, online education for them uh, instead of like having a live classes effectively online and so forth. So I think that there may be some more scalability opportunities in East Asian countries, if my view uh, is uh, right uh, you know, in any ways.
0: Thanks. And Jade? What are you seeing in different parts of the world and differences?
2: Yeah, I would definitely agree with South Africa. I worked there in 2017, and um, we worked with local universities to bring their programs online. And the demand was astounding. I just the programs grew so quickly, uh, we actually weren't well prepared for it. But um, but I think that that shows the opportunity in a lot of different areas. And we're certainly seeing that. Um, from both a regulatory perspective, as you look at, say, India, which is now opening up to online for the first time ever. That's going to bring huge opportunities in that market. Um, And again, I do think that while there may be a backlash, um, there's also a lot to be said for the credibility of online sort of coming in at this very difficult time for the world and providing a solution, whether, you know, people say it's, as good or better or worse almost doesn't matter it was a way to keep things moving and um there's a lot to be said for that
0: that's a that's a great that's a great point well I do want to you know we are all here uh those in the room you know you all have gathered here let's make the most of this and and I would love to hear some questions. We don't have a microphone for COVID uh, reasons, but we if you ask a question, I will repeat it back so the folks um, watching online and so the record has that. So um, is there anybody that wants to, to ask our panelists um, any or share an experience um, or your own observation? Yes, in the front, please. We're just going to play one of the questions um, from the audience here. It was from a high school student. Let me repeat the question. We have a high school student asking a question here and saying that it's, uh, there are extracurriculars like sports and, 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 and that, and how do you address those in an online format?
1: Cool, I'm happy to take the first stab at it. So I think there are a couple different ways. So for extracurricular activities, we feel like a lot of those can be online. So obviously they're going to feel different if you know, you're training for Model UN online and then you want to go to the conference in person. We think you can do that. If you can't go to the conference in person, obviously there are things lost from that. Well, we think kind of the dominant model is that you do some of your training, you do a lot of your work online, but then you retain some of that in-person element. We've also spoken to, you know, partnering with schools. Um, So, you know, you go online to, you know, the high school uh, that we have, but then locally you're still able to compete on their sports teams and do things like that.
0: So that's happening?
1: That is something that, you know, we're in discussions about and I think we will have in the school. Um, Because
0: I just couldn't picture that one in, you know, online. I know there's eSports, but let's, you know.
1: Yeah, and I mean, to be fair, that's uh, probably the most popular sport in that generation, so it should not be, should not be discounted. But I, I think that will be the option. And what we saw with a lot of people during the pandemic was, okay, well, maybe your school is also not the vehicle for all those things. Maybe you're deepening your connection with club sports. Maybe you're deepening your connection with other organizations that pick up the slack. And again, maybe there's a little more of a decoupling from your school being the place where you do all those activities. Um, we think that there are a meaningful proportion of learners that are certainly okay with that where kind of these trade-offs come into play.
0: Well, I um, did. Anyone else want to jump in on that one? But I think we were getting toward the end of time, so I, I wanted to just kind of ask a final question, uh, if that's if 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 you'll indulge me. And I'm interested in, um, you know, the the panel is about disrupting, and we've certainly heard examples of those those things. But um, I'm curious to to hear what people think when we t- we've also heard a lot of talk at this conference and elsewhere these days about equity and you know trying to make sure they're you know rethink. The opportunities and make sure that they're really available more broadly, and and really seeing those problems and challenges magnified or awareness being magnified um, during the pandemic. And I'm curious. I know that the things you've even the examples you've given have pointed to pros and cons for you know um, diverse for access um, and equity, um, like the AP programs and, and that, but also challenges like the digital divides and i guess i'm i'm curious on balance like where you see things going and what what advice or challenges or or any anything you have to leave us with of like how to address the, the downsides and focus, lean toward the, the positives that we've raised here um, if, you, if you understand the question um, David, David, do you, if, I hope I've made myself clearer rather, um, but David does that um, does that
1: Yeah, I, I think for us there's probably two elements here one's the first one I mentioned about geographic equity okay well no matter where you're born do you have access to high quality learning and are we leveling the play, playing field in that way and I think the other one is understanding that online is not a mandate um, it's not going to work for everyone and so what we're doing by creating a viable online infrastructure is we're creating an alternative for students and parents that that works for. Um, and hopefully we're creating an option for many students that they can use to get to a better level. For some students that don't want to do that, we believe that there should be in-person options and that having an online just allows them a different way to learn, a way to access and have more things they couldn't normally. So it's about flexibility, access and Ultimately, just having more than they could if there was no online option. All right, and we have about one minute left. So, Jade, (laughs) it's a hard question to answer in 30
0: seconds, but you could do it.
2: Um, so first I would just say that I think disruption is a funny word because I think if you look at history most disruptions came after years and years of incremental change that sort of get forgotten when the disruption occurs um, and so I think uh, education in particular tends to be incrementalism more than disruption um, but I do think the, the biggest thing that we all have to realize is that we haven't solved this at all. Um, we are all marching towards different solutions then we're all trying to solve the same problems but there's a huge opportunity to try to be really creative in solving these um, because they are big problems and they don't get solved easily or quickly overnight. So it's good because there's a huge amount of opportunity.
0: Thanks. Tomohiro? Yeah, so I think
3: we should, you know, if there is a, a, any view like you know, new against old in education, right? Does a new thing came in and then kind of replace the old version with the new version, right? It's not what should happen because uh, I think there are ways for us to think about a good introduction of online resources in uh, the uh, traditional school environments to kind of narrow the uh, access uh, issues that we have seen.
0: Well, join me in thanking our panelists. Um, We we really appreciate um, David, Jade, and and Tomahiro. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. If you are new to this show, welcome. Uh, This episode was different than normal in that this was kind of highlights of a live event. We do our usual episodes every Tuesday. And we have some great upcoming episodes that are in the works. In a couple of weeks, we're going to check back in on the NFT, the, um, the online collectible that Ed Surge is selling as a way to learn about the blockchain and how that might impact education. And we're working on the next episode of our Bootstraps series about educational equity and about popular narratives of who gets what in education. So make sure you sign up for the Ed Surge podcast, wherever you listen. And sign up for our weekly podcast newsletter, by going to edsurge.com and clicking on the word newsletters at the top right. And if you like the show, please do take a minute to give us a rating or a review. And share it with a friend. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter at JRYoung. Music this episode was by Komaku, which we found on the Free Music Archive. That track is called Ambient Obscure Technology. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.